Thank you for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Miroslav Volf had an interesting upbringing. You might think that's an odd name. Well, it is maybe an odd name to American ears, but that interesting upbringing really enabled him to have some uh, helpful insights about the nature of humanity. Miroslav Volf is the director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. He's a systematic theologian and a public theologian, and his work is about Uh, uh, trying to understand what Christianity says to just different uh, public issues and policies that we deal with. Miroslav grew up in communist Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia has now been broken up, but the real unique thing about his upbringing not only was that he grew up in a communist country in Yugoslavia behind the Iron Curtain in the east, uh, but his father was a Pentecostal pastor. Now that seemed to kind of blow my mind when I learned that. But what happened was, is his father was in a communist concentration camp, heard the gospel there, and was converted in this communist concentration camp. When he got out, he tried to then uh, pastor people in his village. And so for Miroslav Volf, he initially rejected his family's faith, but ultimately he was converted. And he had this experience of if you were a Christian behind the Iron Curtain, you were persecuted, you were monitored at all times. Miroslav uh, was the only Christian in his high school and, and experienced a lot of vilification. Uh, it It was a real burden to be a Christian. However, now in his role as a public theologian who had grown up in a communist country, he he makes this interesting observation about humanity. He says that he argues that if a person or a society rejects the belief in a holy God who is watching, and thus a God who will then judge us for our actions here on earth, that leads to humans becoming increasingly cruel. It leads to a harshness in a society. It doesn't lead to more justice. It actually leads to more injustice. So he has this belief that uh, that when we believe in a righteous personal God who judges us for our actions, that that holds back the worst impulses in humanity. It makes sense, right? Like he's arguing that atheism or taking God out of a society actually makes a society more unjust rather than more righteous. It leads to greater human cruelty. It leads to a devaluing of humanity. Over these next few weeks, we're we're getting more uh, specific on God's creation account to the particular creation of humanity. And there's a series of questions to ask. Okay, what is God's purpose in creating humanity? Are we good? Are we bad? Does he have a goal for us? Is he taking us somewhere? What's the nature of humanity? And really more specifically, what does the Bible's teachings about the origins of humanity, how does that then drive our spirituality? How does that drive how we live our daily lives, how we treat other people, how we view ourselves? Beginning today and through these next few weeks, we're going to begin to answer those questions. And specifically, Genesis 1.26, it shifts, it begins this shift from the creation account from God's general work of creation 
to this particular work of creating humanity. Now, now last week we looked at most of Genesis 1, right? We looked at all those days, and we saw that God spoke creation into existence. His method for uh, filling the earth and forming the earth was his word. He said it, and then it was. And so we were called to, okay, we're to believe God's word because uh, creation comes into existence from his word. But today we're taking maybe one more step. We're looking at the culmination of this creation account, which the culmination is the creation creation of humanity, the creation of you and me created in the image of God. And and, and we're going to see that not only does God create, but he creates life. When when he speaks from his word, life follows. And we're going to see really through the, that begins a theme in the Bible to where that happens here in Genesis 1, but that becomes a theme all the way through the scriptures, right? From God's word, from God's communication, from God's speaking, life, life in all its form follows. So we're going to be called today uh, to believe that, that God's uh, word creates life, and we're to believe that. God speaks life. Let me start here in Genesis 1:26, and we're going to see that God created us in his image. I'm going to go from 26 to verse 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I will give you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree and seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has, has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And then verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. I'm going to make nine observations about what it means to be created in the image of God. But just quickly, I want to highlight a couple of things from this passage. First, notice that God speaks of himself in the plural. Let us make man in our image. I think this is an early nod to the fact that God is Trinity. God exists as three persons but they exist in such close community that we're monotheistic. It doesn't make mathematical sense, but it does make God sense. God kind of is outside of all of our box. I'm very comfortable with that. Second, I want you to notice that um, he he has uh, what what he describes as uh, the nature of humanity is we're created in his image, and we're going to camp out there today. But then he has this mandate, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, fill the earth. He also speaks about how the earth and his creation, like all of creation, it's for his glory, but for our good. And specifically, he talks about the plants. He's given those to us for his good. This is the case for, if, if you're a vegetarian, this is your verse. This is the case for it, okay? Obviously, I'm not. I feel like I probably should be, but, but if you are, I think you have real biblical grounds for this. Also notice that if, uh, um, like all of creation, he says it's good, it's good, it's good, but on the creation of humanity, he says it's very good. 
This is the pinnacle or the climax of all his uh, creation mandate. Well, let's look at what does it mean to be created in the image of God. And the Latin phrase or the theological phrase is imago Dei. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Again, this is the pinnacle of God's creation, that we have been created in his image. And what this means is, is that we're not exactly like God. He doesn't, he doesn't create other gods, but he creates humans in a similar way like God. Well, the question becomes, well, in what way are we similar? In what ways are we not? There's probably obvious some ways that we're not, but a lot of ink has been spilt on explaining what does Imago Dei mean, but I think the best way to understand it is kind of in three categories. We're like God or similar to God in three main ways. Number one, we are like God physically. We're like God, number two, mentally. And number three, we're like God spiritually. So in some ways, we're similar to, to God physically, mentally, and spiritually. So if you think about it, especially when Jesus incarnated himself and lived on the earth, there was a physicalness to Jesus, right? When Jesus got tired, he took a nap. There were times where Jesus got hungry and he felt that, right? So in a similar way, we are also physical beings. Now this means there are certain physical things that some religions maybe say are just a figment of your imagination. That's not the Christian understanding of it. Biblically, if you have cancer, you physically have cancer. You are experiencing that suffering. That is real. That's not a figment of your imagination. Second, you can do things physically that are sinful and you're doing them. You can't, the devil made me do it. You can't blame the devil. You can't make some sort of separation. Well, that's not really who I am. Really who I am is this inner person and not this. If you punch someone sinfully, you are sinning. It's part of physically who you are. Also, there's an aspect of God in his physicality creates things. Jesus was a carpenter. In a similar way, you physically create other things, right? So in other words, fish can't build skyscrapers. Fish aren't creating the image of God, but you as a human can build these things and create these things because you're like God. Number two, there's a mental aspect uh, to, to who God is. If you think about it, God thought up creation and then it came about, right? He's a thinking being. And likewise, we can, uh, we, we can conceive ideas. We can perceive complex things like algebra or Trinitarianism. And further, we can uh, preserve concepts or, or memories in our mind. So you probably have loved ones that are no longer with us, but you still have those memories in your mind. They, they, they still live there. That, that's a very God-like thing that we have all these mental powers. We can dream up poems. We can dream up new churches. Everyone knows that the Labradoodle is the greatest animal. But the Labradoodle can't write crime novels, right? The Labradoodle is an animal. We are humans. We're creating the image of God. We have this mental power that's different than all the other animals. Number three, we're spiritual beings. So in, if you think about God, God has this soul. He has this ethic and this intentionality that he's living according. And we have that, that same call. God lives in relationship because we're spiritual beings. We have relationship. And we have these holes that we're supposed to fill in our lives with community. God's the same way. God is perfectly loving to the degree that he himself is a relationship where he loves himself. And then out of that love, he creates us. So we uh, are created for relationship just like God. We also desire purpose to the degree that we invent things and we create things. We're, we're moved deeply by things. You know, all of us are moved by different art. Maybe it's a movie, maybe it's a poem, maybe it's a song. 
but that's part of spiritually who you are. When you hear that song or see that movie or that image of something, it just moves you deeply. You're a spiritual being. Everyone knows buffaloes are the second greatest animals. But buffaloes can't write worship songs, right? We're different than the animals in this way. We have this spiritual aspect to who we are. Like God, there's a physicalness to us. There's a a mental capacity to us, and there's this spiritual side to all of us. The Imago Dei also speaks to a creation mandate. If you look back uh, at, at your passage, God has this dominion mandate that he gives to all of humanity, that we're to rule over creation. And it's this God-like mandate. We're not God. Creation is not ours. It's his. He created it. But he lets us kind of come underneath him in, in participating in ruling over creation. And further and related, it doesn't mean that we have this ethical freedom to like destroy creation. We're to uh, foster creation and care for creation, and we're to do it in such a way where we actually hand off creation to the next generation to where it's healthier than what we received it. It's for us. It's a gift to us. It's a good gift to us. We're supposed to use it for things. Uh, We have this great uh, explanation in here that he gives us creation for us, for our good, so that we can eat, and so that's a good thing, but we're to care for it in a way to where we hand it off better than what we received it. I think the best image of this, of how this is done as a game warden. You know what a game warden does, right? Like, like the, uh, the game wardens with the state of Texas, they kind of have in their mind, okay, here's, here's how nature and humanity live in harmony. And, and they'll, you know, pick an animal, deer. If we have too many deer, man, this is going to cause a lot of problems. If we don't have enough deer, that's going to cause a different set of problems. So they're trying to kind of, you know, find this harmony with that animal, right? And so then we bring in hunters and they you know, limit how much we can all hunt. But that's what game wardens do. They, they try to uh, have dominion, if you will, over the earth so that humanity and, and uh, creation is living in harmony with it. So we understand that uh, the creation is a gift from God. It's a good gift from him and we're to have uh, dominion over it. The Imago Dei also says something about gender. Look again at your passage that he has created us in the image of God. He's created us male and female. What this means is, is your gender is ultimately not a social construct. It's not something that you choose. It's something that God has chosen for you. God in his good sovereignty has chosen what gender you're supposed to be. And I think it's very important to teach children and young people that if you're born female, God wants you to be a female. If you're born male, God wants you to be a male. And if you're a girl, that's a good thing. It's awesome to be a girl. If you're a guy, it's awesome to be a guy. There's great things about that, but these things are within God's uh, sovereignty on, uh, on you. I think it's very important on that point to emphasize that just because what some dude in Denton County thinks is masculine or feminine, that's not necessarily what is biblically masculine and feminine. This is a silly example. We have a, we have a, a new gal in our fantasy football league. And man, dude, she's awesome, okay? Like, she'd pick some draft picks in that draft, and all the guys are like, what, what's the girl doing here? After week one, we know exactly what she's doing here, and she's beating all of us because of it. If you think fantasy football is some guy thing and you're a girl and you want to play fantasy football, go play fantasy football. Are, are you tracking what I'm saying here? 
This is maybe even more ridiculous. I was trying to find something dumb here, but Dancing with the Stars, guys, if you like Dancing with the Stars, go for it, okay? So the world's perceptions of what is masculine and feminine are not necessarily what the Bible's perceptions of masculinity and femininity is good, but both genders are good. Both genders are created in the image of God. Men are not better than women. Women are not better than men. Rather, they complement each other. I think complement, that idea of of, uh, complementing each other is the best way to understand genders in the Bible. And of course, in a marriage relationship, that that romantic and intimate uh, uh, complementing each other is what then produces really this intention of marriage, which is children. It brings new life. And so it's evidence of the goodness of this complementary uh, relationship between men and women. There's a, a, a theological discussion about how men and women relate. And one of those positions is called complementarianism. And I, I think that's the one that is most faithful to the scripture, that we that understand that uh, genders are to complement each other. They're not in competition to each other. There's not one better than the other, but they complement each other. Well, this then speaks to marriage. The Imago Dei uh, speaks to the nature of marriage. Biblically, I think the best way to understand marriage is it's between one man and one woman. It's to be heterosexual and monogamous. That's what we see here from Genesis 1. It's, it's intended to produce children. It's intended to, for us to experience this faithful intimacy and care and love for each other. There's a deep community that happens in, uh, in the marriage relationship. And so that's why God calls it good. At least mine is. Marriage is good. It's a gift from the Lord. It's one of those great gifts from God, and it's intended to, uh, where, where, where God gives it to us to where we're supposed to cultivate marriage. And, and there's this clear teaching here that God created marriage. He created marriage as a good thing. So there's supposed to be boundaries with marriage between one man and one woman, and that marriage is to lead to life physical life, emotional life, spiritual life. We need those, uh, we need relationships and the marriage relationship is the most intimate. Now, if you're sitting here saying, okay, I'm not married, then I want to remind you that the greatest of all human beings was not married. Jesus, when he was on this earth, fulfilled the creation mandate better than anyone and he was not married. He, didn't, he never had a sexual relationship with a woman. He never had children. So when we understand all these categories, we have to ultimately look at Christ and say, okay, I think this creation mandate has something to uh, having children, and I think it does, but that's not all that it, that it means. And in fact, the scriptures are very clear uh, that the greatest human was not married, did not have a sexual relationship with a woman, did not have children. Paul, another great, uh, another great human that existed, he speaks about in 1 Corinthians 7 about the virtues of singleness. So this is not a call that everyone is supposed to be married or everyone is supposed to have children. There's uh, the greatest, some of the greatest humans that ever lived were not married and did not have children. But God does say that he created marriage, and marriage is good, and marriage leads to children. So the Imago Dei, number, number five, speaks to children. Being identified as male and female are both good, and they're both godlike. Marriage is good, and it's also linked to this creation mandate, that we're supposed to have dominion over the earth. Men and women are to multiply, they're to fill, they're sub- to subdue the earth. And this certainly refers to having children. So having children is, uh, uh, is, is, is central to what God has created humanity to do. Having children is good. Children are a blessing. And if you've been a trustee or an elder and you've looked at kind of our budget and how we make, do planning around here, 
we care a lot about children here. We care deeply about children and students because God loves them. Those, those children that we have in our church are gifts to our church. Children are a blessing. Just I'll give you one passage. Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks uh, with his enemies at the gate. So central to our understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God is this mandate to multiply, to have children. However, again, we need to remember that the greatest of human beings did not have children. He, He lived this perfect life, perfectly living out the creation mandate, and he did not have children. However, the creation mandate is this broader category than having children, but children are certainly a part of it, and children are a blessing. But this also speaks uh, to work. The Imago Dei has something to say about how we work. We have this mandate to, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to, to have dominion over the earth. The creation mandate means that we have this relationship with the, with the earth and with creation in such a way that we're supposed to improve creation. The best image of this is farming. So if you think about like a farmer, farmer has a, a plot of land, he clears the land. He, he then, you know, kind of cleans up the land where it's good for farming. He removes the weeds and he removes the rocks and then he plants something that will be beneficial to the others to, to produce a profit for him, right? And, and then he goes and as he produces that first round of crop, it's, if he's a really good farmer, what does he do? He backs up and says, hey, is there a better way that I can do this? Can I make bigger cantaloupes and more cantaloupes. That's what it means to to be this farmer to where you're creating these things. We've even taken it so far that we have started colleges with the point of improving farming. Aggies, you can whoop at this point, okay? This is why we have Texas A&M. This is why we have Oklahoma State University. They're intended to, to help with this process, at least originally, right? That's why those colleges were formed. Just on an aside, In the 1970s, there began to be this push among scientists and environmentalists saying that we are going to run out of food because there's this steep population growth and we need to level off having children. None of that proved to be true, right? Like here we are all these years on and what happened? We we have more food than we've ever had. Our country could feed most of the world. You know why? Because we, the, our farmers have backed up and in a real creation mandate fashion have said, okay, how can we do this better? How can we make more? How can we live in harmony with the earth at the same time, improve our farming techniques to where we can produce more? Again, the creation mandate means that we are to have a relationship with creation in such a way that we improve creation. However, I don't think that we have many farmers in our church. I don't, I don't know one farmer or rancher in our church. We have lawyers, we have web designers, we have accountants, we have teachers, uh, we have salesmen and women, we have principals. So what is creation mandate, what does that say to you in your profession? What, what does it mean to you? The, the principle is the same, I think, that whatever work the Lord has given, has given you, you're to, with all your physical energy and creative energy, you're to come about that work and you're to figure out how to make it better. For example, we have a young man in our church that works at the greatest of Texas restaurants, Whataburger. So what does it mean to fulfill the creation mandate at Whataburger, okay? Well, number one, he's, well, he's to back up and say, what does it mean to do this job, and then how do I do it to the best of my abilities? 
What does it mean to do this job? I need to be on time. I've got a uniform to wear. I need to wear the uniform. When they tell me this is how you grill a burger, this is how I grill a burger. When Pastor Micah rolls up and asks for the double meat, double cheese, I don't want to undercook the burger, okay? When Pastor Micah shows up with the double meat, double cheese, do not tell Kristen that he might, Pastor Micah showed up with the double meat, double cheese, okay? He's to go about that and do the basics of that job. But the creation mandate says something further. He's to ask, how do I do this better? How do I make a burger a little bit faster? How do I ensure that the order is right? How, how do I do it the best way? What are the problems that I need to fix? Throughout the summer on our sabbatical, one of my um, most fervent prayers is just for the next generation at our church. For many, the next generation have seen fathers and mothers who were workaholics. They've seen the negative impacts of this kind of poor work-life relationship, right? And, and I think for many in that generation, and, and hear me, I don't have any one particular person in mind in our church, okay? But I think for many in that generation, they've swung to the other extreme. They said, okay, I've seen on this extreme how not to do it, but, but for some, they've gone to the other extreme. And, and there's young people out there that I worry are not putting enough creative energy and time into their work. They're, they're spending good time with their family. They're, they're getting, spending good time with their friends and on their hobbies. But at the same time, they're producing mediocre work that their bosses are just pulling their hair out on. You see, the creation mandate says something there. Hear me, if you're a student, I think this is worth the price of the admission today. Pastor Grant has a great phrase in the student ministry, humble confidence. Humble confidence is actually, when you're a young person, where the creation mandate begins for you. You see, everyone starts at the bottom, right? Everyone starts at the bottom. So when you take that first job, you're starting at the bottom, just like everybody else. There's nothing shameful about that. There's nothing wrong about that. So when that 22-year-old assistant manager is hovering over you and he says, no, 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 this is how you grill a burger. Are you humble and confident in that moment? Are, are you teachable in that moment? When, when the dad says, no, 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 hold on. This is how you edge. This is how you make that straight line down the curb. Are you teachable in that moment? When your teacher says, a lot is two words. Are you teachable in that moment? What about, it's anyway, not anyways. When your English teacher says that, do you remember that? Do you hear that? I've had some teachers in this room who've helped me with that. Students, being teachable in your work, uh, in your work life, that's the first step towards fulfilling uh, the creation mandate. And hear me, we are all in this boat, okay? I've had some wonderful mentors just help me with preaching and teach me how to preach. Some of them have been pastors that I've had. About a decade ago, I was visiting with a sweet lady at our, at our last church, and she started telling me a story about a, a pastor in our town that she had heard a sermon of, and he had, he had told an inappropriate joke in his sermon that really offended her. And as she's telling me this story, about halfway through it dawned on me, I was the associate pastor, it dawned on me, I preached last week. And then it dawned on me, I told a joke that was right on the line. I was picking up what she was laying down. I knew what she was doing there. And just her sweetness, her little nudge, she was saying, Micah, you know, just don't go there again, okay? And now, 10 years later, when I put something in here, I think, how would my mamaw hear this? And how would that sweet lady hear this, okay? It made me better. 
It just, it, it, she loved me enough to speak into something to help me be better. Again, being teachable is the first step to fulfilling the creation mandate. Friends, work is a curse. Work is also part of the creation mandate, and in that way, work is good. You're created to do that work. The American idea of success is not the biblical idea of success. However, with that 40, 50, 60 hours of your week, are you bringing the creation mandate into that? Are you giving all your uh, creative energy and your physical passions to that work? Are you making that better? The creation mandate is a key aspect of your humanity. Your, your identity is in Christ, but, but that should fuel and inform, not distract you from being great at your job. Amen? The Imago Dei also says that we, are inherent, that we have inherent dignity. You're creating the image of God. You're like God in ways that animals are not. You're, you have a physicalness, a, 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 the mental capacity that animals don't have. You have a spiritual component to who you are that animals don't have. God, in, in his loving sovereignty, has either made you a man or a woman, and he has created men and women to complement each other. That doesn't mean that every dude in Denton County's view of masculinity or femininity is the biblical view of that, but it does mean that, that being a, a woman is good, being a man is good, and we're to embrace those things. We also see that God, uh, what God created in that is marriage, and marriage is good. It, it fulfills these needs for us. We also see uh, that, uh, uh, that what that marriage leads to is good, which is new life. God has given you a creation mandate as a humanoid. You're supposed to go out and whatever God gives you, you're to take it and you're to make it better. He's given you these creation mandates to fill, subdue. You're to be like God in all these ways. You're to build families. You're to plant churches. You're to paint portraits. You're to write music. You're to build websites. You're to start businesses. You're to be the best daggum middle school principal your district has ever seen. God has called you to all of that. All of that is what it means to be a human. And after all this creating work, after all this vision for humanity and all these mandates, God looks down at humans. And you know what he says? It is very good. What that means is, is as the pinnacle of creation, you as a human have inherent dignity. God has views you with value in the way he's created you. Please hear me that whenever you feel your lowest, Believe the truth that the creator God has passionately and lovingly made you the way you are. And he loves you enough to die for you. He likes the way that you are. High school girls, if that ding-dong doesn't like you, who cares? High school boys are ding-dongs, okay? God likes you on how you are. God's created you the way that you look. He likes that about who you are. This is up to God, and you have worth, and you have value just the way that you are. God's made you that way. And this gets to some more specifics. Do you know who else has dignity and worth? Those who are different than you. They have dignity and worth. God made them different than you because he likes them, and he likes you. Clearly, God likes diversity. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made it that way. If you look different or someone looks different than you and you view them as less because of that, that's the sin of racism and God hates it. And he hates it because it causes that person to feel like they have less dignity and worth than what God has given them. You probably remember the the famous letter from the Birmingham jail that Martin Luther King wrote. And he shares this story in there 
uh, I typically when I share it, I tear up, but he shares the story of this little daughter there watching a commercial about the new amusement park in their town. Daddy, when can we go to the amusement park? Honey, we can't go to the amusement park because they don't let black girls and black boys in there. And he said that he watched the wave of inferiority just wash over her. In that moment, the world was telling her she, was, she did not have dignity. She did not have worth. She was somehow less than other people. Abraham Lincoln looked at that and addressed that in his uh, second inaugural address. And his conclusion was, is God was punishing America because of racism. I think he was right. People who are different than you and look different than you have dignity and worth. Do you know who else does? People who have limitations and special needs, who can't do all the things that you can do. People who maybe process things slower or differently than most people. Uh, Those people, the creator God has created them uh, in his image with dignity and with worth. The Nazis saw that differently and they exterminated them. Scandinavian countries are requiring people to abort those type of people. But Christians view this differently. We view people who who maybe have some sort of special need as created in the image of God. They have inherent value. We are to love them. We're to care for them. Those physical limitations that keep them out of the workforce, that they don't limit them in any way of having dignity and worth. They are special in the eyes of God. They have dignity and worth. Do you know who else does? Those people who are not yet born. They have a right to life just like you and me. God has created them with gifts and abilities and personalities, and it's not our role to take their life. God has given them life. Those unborn babies have dignity and worth. And when that scared young woman is tempted with, do I abort this child? I know all the consequences. I know all the pain and the difficulties that are coming. Christians are to come alongside her and say, you have worth. You have dignity. We will walk this road with you. That baby has worth. That baby has dignity and trust in the Lord. He will do something good here. We're called to protect them and defend them and to stand up for them, the most vulnerable in our society. The most vulnerable and defenseless class of people in our society are the unborn. And Christians are called to protect them. And in the same way we outlawed slavery in this country, we are to outlaw this. And in the same way that Abraham Lincoln thought the sin of racism was why all this judgment was coming on us, I'm just putting my cards on the table. I think God's judging us for this sin. The unborn have dignity and worth. Well, where are we in summary here? Genesis 1 is the ground for our convictions about what it means to be a human. We're the pinnacle of God's creation. We've been uh, created man and woman in the image of God. We're to embrace this mandate that he's given us. We're like God physically, mentally, spiritually, and he calls us to subdue the earth, to make it better. We're to live in harmony with it in such a way that we create and make it better. There's a ton in Genesis 1, and you know what God did at the end, right? He Sabbathed. He rested. Look at Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and, the, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work and, he, and all that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work and from all that he had done. A lot has happened in Genesis 1. And it's climax with this phrase, created in the image of God. 
And there's enormous ethical implications from that. Our origins have something to say about our spirituality. The creation mandate drives how we're to live as humans. This has been a long sermon, and maybe you're tired at the end of it. But God never gets tired. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither, will neither slumber nor sleep. So what's he doing here at the end? When I rest, it's because I'm tired. I work. I stop because I'm tired. I cease from work at that moment. What, what's God doing here? Why is he resting? Why is this, this being who never gets tired, why is he resting? The, the Hebrew word here is where we get the word Sabbath. And it, it simply means ceasing from work. Stopping, what you're, stopping the work that you're doing. But, but there's something more profound, something more theological, something more spiritual that's happening here on the seventh day. Two things. First, God is resting in the sense that he's enjoying his word work, and it's not because he's tired. He's enjoying his word work. Again, let there be light. There was light. Let the, he speaks these things into, his, into existence. It's his word work, and he stops and he enjoys it. And second, it says that it's holy and it's sacred, meaning he's setting aside this time in order to enjoy this work. So God rested, meaning that he ceased working on his world in order to enjoy his work. And in that moment, he stopped speaking things into existence, and he created space for him to enjoy what he did. His work was good, and he viewed it as good. He found enjoyment and happiness in stopping and viewing it as good. Does that make sense? So he's pondering these things. He's looking at it, seeing it as, glory, as glorious. He's actually finding happiness and joy doing this. He, he doesn't find happiness and joy in other places. He finds it in pondering all that he's created. He's created the, this, this, this world through his word, and he finds it an enjoying activity, a soul-filling activity to pause and enjoy it. But also notice that he's teaching us to do the same. He sets it aside as holy, as a model for us. We're to do the same thing. We're to lay down our tools. We're to stop our work and, and not go veg on Netflix. Life is not found in those toys. We think that it is, and we pursue it as, okay, this is where I'm going to find my rest. But we always walk away unfulfilled, don't we? But when we worship, when we have those deep, powerful moments of worship, or when we're in the Word, and we've, we've read that verse a thousand times, and all of a sudden there's this new insight, and God's clearly highlighting something. He's opened our eyes for us. In those moments, that's when our souls are filled, right? When we're out there serving and participating in these things, that's when our souls are filled. When God rests on the seventh day, He's calling us to follow that pattern in order to enliven our weary souls. The point of these verses is to see that not only does God speak creation, but He also speaks life. God's word brings life. Particularly we're to believe God's, uh, that God through his word created humanity in his image. We have inherent dignity. These convictions then firm up all these ethical positions, all these spiritual applications. Let, let me just close with four spiritual applications. Number one, preach it to yourself. When you're not living according to God's image, preach the gospel to yourself. Also, when you don't feel like you have dignity and worth that God has given you, preach the gospel to yourself. Number two, let the truth that God has created every person in his image with dignity guide how you love others. 
Do you love others in the way that God has loved you? Do you see them with the dignity and the worth that God sees them with? Do you love others the way God loves them? Number three, Genesis 127 should be used to, what I would say, develop a, a, an ethic of life. Do, do we, listen, the, the world doesn't believe in the Imago Dei, and then they live accordingly. As Christians, we believe in the Imago Dei. Do we let all the implications of that, all those ethical implications, do we let that guide our view of life, how we treat people, how we think about different situations? Four, and finally, God through his word is creating, but he's particularly creating life. Are you doing what God did on the seventh day? Are you resting like he rested, enjoying the life that he has created, enjoying his word work in such a way that your soul is filled up? Genesis 1 is is only the beginning of all these themes. You see, uh, God's redemptive plan, it marches forward through all the scriptures, and we see over and over and over again God creating life with his word. It's a theme. He starts it here, but it goes all the way through. He, he creates life in every aspect of the term, physical life, spiritual life, emotional life. God is in the business of speaking life into existence. Think of the cross. Think of the cross. In that moment, he gets up, atones for your sins, and dies. And then what does he do? He creates new life. He's resurrected again. God is in the business of resurrecting the dead to life. Clearly, this passage calls us to rest in God's good creation of humanity. It's it's a call to see ourselves and others the way God sees us, creating the image of God. But ultimately, it's a call to believe that God's word is how we experience life. Let me end with where Jesus ended with the religious teacher. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Believe his word and you too will experience the life that he offers. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage and we thank you for the life that comes from your word. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have created each and every one of us with just inherent dignity and value, not because of something we've done, but because of something you've done. Lord, in our, those moments where we don't feel that because we don't believe it, I pray that we would come back to these truths and believe it. Lord, I pray that we would treat ourselves as being created in the image of God, that we would treat others as created in the image of God, and that we would believe the good news that your word produces life. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.